Big week for United. Last week's chaotic transfer rumors ended in confirmation that United would sign Casemiro from Real Madrid for a staggering £60 million fee and nearly record-breaking wages. The excitement of Casemiro's unveiling at Old Trafford on Monday preceded the side's first win under Eric Ten Hag, as United dispatched arch-rivals Liverpool and finally put points on the board. Today on Devils in the Details, we interview special guest Om Arvin to get his analysis from years of watching Casemiro before diving into the tactical approach that enabled success against Liverpool and the implications of it going forward. First, before we get started, Case, how are you this week? Way better than last week. Um, I think probably everyone listening to this is way better than last week because that match on Monday was awesome. Pretty much the same for me and... I mean, even better that now we get to welcome our first ever guest on the Devils in the Details podcast, and it's Om Arvin. So guys, for those of you who don't know, and you should all know Om, he's a fantastic football content creator whose work has been published in all kinds of places, including his own newsletter. I can't even really do it justice, but he mainly focuses on tangential aspects and and specifically the tactical side of football. And... I personally think he's one of the most interesting, clever content creators in the football space right now, and he's covered loads of teams and players over the years, but his main focus tends to be Real Madrid's men's and women's teams, making him perfect to give us the complete lowdown on Casemiro. So, Om, how are you today? I'm doing well. I appreciate that very generous intro and excited to dig into a Casemiro discussion and probably rehash a little bit of a debate that and Real Madrid circles kind of got settled around 2018, but I suppose will resurface now that he's gone to United. Awesome. Well, we're glad to have you on. I mean, kind of glad that the Casemiro deal happened because it gives us an excuse to have you on the podcast. And I mean, as much as it's been a big week for United, this is also a huge week for Real Madrid, given that they just sold one of the starters from the four-time Champions League winning team for £60 million. So... What's kind of the reaction around Real Madrid um, with selling Casemiro, and was it maybe expected or perhaps a bit of a surprise? Yeah, no, this came completely out of the blue. I mean, initially when it happened, I remember you quote tweeted with something, and then I replied like something to the effect of like, "There's no way this is happening, right? Like this is just the Glazers again using the media to you know try to satiate the fan base's desire for signings by just throwing in a big name like Casemiro." It appears like they're finally addressing a hole at defensive midfielder that people have been asking for for a while. And so like initially, I would say like day one from the Real Madrid side was like a lack of seriousness towards it, right? It was like, this is just United, like you wish. And then really quickly, the Spanish side of the media started reporting real interest from Casemiro and that Real Madrid would not oppose if he wanted to go. And the narrative quickly turned into, from the Real Madrid side of things, they started working the media on their side, and it was that, well, this is all on Casemiro, you know, we can't stand on his way, we have no power in this, that sort of thing, which is not really true, given that he had a contract to, like, 2024-2025, something to that effect. And if Real Madrid really wanted him to stay, we had all the power to make that happen. It was just a case of all three parties involved you know, kind of aligned in that Real Madrid's initial plan was we've signed Chouameni, we trans we have a transition year, right? Casemiro, like Chouameni is under no pressure whatsoever, as little pressures as possible when you play in front of the Bernabeu, and we hand over the role to him, and it's it, it's done cleanly. And then this offer comes, and it's like, well, if you're going to pay us this much, and Real Madrid thought it was a good offer, and we, we're definitely not going to match those wages at his age, then why not do it? And from Real Madrid fans' side, I would say the reaction when it became clear he was leaving was like absolute like hysteria, right? Like we got who is supposed to play defensive midfielder? Should it be Fede Valverde? Should it be Tony Kroos? And some of us were like, maybe it should be the guy we paid $80 million for to play defensive midfielder in, in place of Casemiro. And it didn't help that Chouameni like honestly played pretty badly on his debut versus Almeria. And he kind of calmed those fears in, in the last match where he, he played really quite well and we got kind of a look at what Chuameni and Kamavinga together in a midfield will look like. And I this will just go back and forth because we're Real Madrid fans. You know, whenever he doesn't do well, people will be like, this is why we shouldn't have sold Casemiro. But eventually it should be all right because, look, if you're going to bet on one guy, I don't know who you would pick other than Chuameni. 
if you wanted to replace Casemiro. Like, I don't know, maybe you guys have another name, but he would be the number one name for me. So, yeah, ultimately, ideally, what I would have wanted was have Casemiro at least for one more year, make it an easy transition, and then we can think about moving on. But it is what it is. And maybe I would have wanted to, like, try to, you know, eke more out of United because it is United, but 60 mil plus that 10 mil add-on, you know, it's not bad. Yeah, I totally agree. And as for Chuameni, I mean, I was going to ask you this later, but I basically think he's one of the signings of the summer. I think he's awesome. And yeah, it is it is a little bit sudden for a club that's expected to compete as consistently as Real Madrid, but I I don't think it's going to be a huge issue after a while. I think Chuameni is going to take to take to playing for Real Madrid really well. Casemiro is obviously one of the highest profile midfielders on the planet, but that doesn't mean he's free of weaknesses. And I think the biggest conversation that Case and I were having last week on the podcast, besides his sort of age and wage and fee, um, is the fact that perhaps his greatest strengths as a player don't really lie where United's greatest weaknesses are in this midfield. United are kind of looking for someone who's going to help them facilitate uh, playing in build-up and help them get up the pitch, whereas Casemiro is the type of player who's going to prevent the opposition from doing that. How do you think Casemiro would perhaps be able to adjust to a role that could demand such a large workload in the first phase of, uh, of possession? And what would you say his strengths and weaknesses in that kind of role might be? Yeah, so I would say Casemiro is a little bit of an interesting case because I don't think you can just rule him out as he has no good qualities on the ball. And I think this is what makes it a little difficult for people, especially those who don't watch Real Madrid consistently, because I feel like you can pull out a number of highlights or even maybe pick out one isolated game and maybe, you know, talk yourself into this idea that Casemiro like is maybe not a flawless ball player, but there's really not many issues to speak of. And I don't think that would be quite accurate. And so the thing with Casemiro is I, I we can start with what he's good on, on the ball and how that kind of leads into his weaknesses and they relate to, to, to create this this type of situation for him that may or may not be there at United. So what he's good at on the ball is weirdly enough, I would say, kind of the bigger, more spectacular actions, which is not something you necessarily associate with a quote-unquote limited midfielder in possession. Um, I mean, Casemiro, in terms of his like very young footballing years, grew up as a striker, you know, like I think he still has some of that attitude in him before he eventually you know, shifted into a defensive midfielder role. And I think like this is emblematic in the fact that like the switch pass is what he's best at, like genuinely pretty good at being able to hit the option on the far side. He enjoys doing it a lot. Sometimes he enjoys doing it so much that he'll just on the turn hit it first time, no look. And those are the occasions where it may or may not come off because he's not really like seeing where it's going. He's just assuming the option is there. But by and large, if you want someone to hit the other side of the field, I mean, he, he's pretty comfortable doing that. And he, he generally has a pretty good track record of doing so. I would say there will be maybe three to four times a season where he plays this, you know, crazy, you know, pinged vertical pass on the ground to let someone get free in transition or something that you're like, that was really good. Um, but I think the thing with midfield work when you are a deeper line playmaker receiving from the center backs is about what you're doing in the aggregate. It's about marginal gains. And I think that's where Casemiro struggles because that's where the flaws in, in the more subtle technical aspects of possession play get magnified, right? Because when you have to make 100 passes a game, you know, on like 120 touches or whatever, like... It's the consistency that needs to be there and his body shape and the way he, you know, takes the ball on the half turn. There are some issues there that, you know, people t tend to say like, that's just more aesthetic. But I think when you go into the aggregate actions, like it, it's not just aesthetic. It, it becomes an issue where, you know, a few times he can really put his team under pressure, losing the ball because he's not receiving in the right way, or maybe he didn't scan enough times over his shoulder and like process it, process that and, and execute in a way that makes sense. So I would say like the press resistant aspect is one where I think I pretty firmly believe that there's a hard ceiling on how valuable he is under pressure. And I think that's probably his weakest aspect. When it comes to like facing play and, and making passes and stuff, 
because he has these strengths playing these, you know, longer balls and stuff like that, you know, he, I would say there are, there are occasions where he's certainly adding actual positive value in possession. But if you're asking for him to dictate the tempo of the game or be someone who takes on a high load of actions, you're going to get a sort of chaotic atmosphere, right? Both because of the passes he likes to play when he's feeling himself, but also because there becomes the problem of the consistency of his execution and technique. And so we'll talk about what his situation was like at Madrid most of the time, but there were case studies. And I think if I'm remembering this correctly, it's the beginning of the 2020-21 season where I think Kroos was out. We played double pivot and Casemiro had basically one side of the pitch to himself. And he demonstrably took on a higher load in terms of, I mean, you can see it statistically in terms of his touches and passes and his passing accuracy went way down, you know, his numbers got positive in terms of like, you know, passes in the final third and all of that. But Real Madrid just looked like a team that couldn't really control the game when they gave that load to Casemiro. And so I think that's the fundamental thing with him, right, is if you can make accommodations for him, both in two ways, right? One, can you get him out of situations where he's going to be the primary target of the press in deeper areas? And two, can you take a load off his shoulder when the team gets, you know, past the first phase and is, you know, facing play? If you can do those two things, then you have a situation where Casemiro mostly looks pretty good on the ball. And and that's kind of the situation that he's had at Real Madrid basically his entire career he's been there, right? He's had two of the greatest ball players of all time in Kroos and Modric take over those duties to the point where we've had a pretty common structure where Kroos always drops deeper than him in the first phase of build-up. And when facing really good high presses, Modric will drop off too. And Casemiro almost looks like he's a number 10 in possession. Like, it's been a long-running joke forever, right? That, you know, Casemiro is like the best number 10 in the world because that's been his off-ball role for such a long time at Real Madrid. And there, it got to a very extreme point in the 2019-20 season where to get more offense in the absence of Ronaldo, Zidane just turned Casemiro into a box runner late in games, right? So like in terms of his offensive role, it had nothing to do with what a defensive midfielder usually does, right? Because his real biggest strengths as an offensive player would honestly probably be as a box crasher because he's very good in the air, but also like he has a really underrated sense of like box occupation. Like he positions himself really well, consistently gets separation. And so it's it's that weird thing with Casemiro where like a lot of his best traits offensively almost seem to suit more of a box-to-box player. But at the same time, as a defensive player, he's best being a proper number six screening the defensive line, not as an N'Golo Conte, who's more of this roaming destroyer, although Casemiro could do that. So there's like kind of that disconnect there, but also he's not enough of a consistent presence between the lines and stuff to really be a proper offensive threat as like a central midfielder, uh, advanced central midfielder. So it's about trade-offs with Casemiro and it's about a question of load, right? And can Manchester United, to a certain extent, replicate the situation they had at Real Madrid to get the best out of him? Because in my opinion, I do think that's necessary. Otherwise, you're going to get situations where his flaws are magnified. And to be clear, with all of that he had at Real Madrid, there were still enough occasions throughout a season where you saw flaws in possession that made people want to say that he shouldn't be in the team anymore. Although, in the long view, I ultimately never bought into that, right? Casemiro was always my number one defensive midfielder choice. But there were games that you go into thinking, in this particular one, we shouldn't start him because he could be a liability versus the press. And even then, we couldn't accommodate for him. So, yeah, I I guess that's where I'll stop. We could literally stop the podcast right now and people would, like, love it. Like, we could record nothing else. That was awesome. Yeah, that was perfect. I mean, okay, so we we talked a little bit about how Kroos and Modric protected Casemiro a lot by reducing the load that he has to manage in possession. And I guess, in turn, how Casemiro often ends up in more advanced roles while his team is in possession of the ball. So as opposed to carrying the load in the first phase, he kind of almost ends up as, like you said, a number 10. How much do you think the success of this signing or the optics of this signing end up being judged based on United's ability to manage 
the aspects of Casemiro's game that he's weak at. I, I think there are two aspects to this signing. I think there, there are what can United do, and then there are how the fans see it, right? And I don't think they're necessarily always related in that, look, like, I, I think the, the view on McTominay on this podcast is pretty clear, and I'm not the biggest fan of him either. And my view is just two months of Casemiro in the place of McTominay is going to make Casemiro on the ball, no matter what United do. That's just my opinion. If only because he can, he just has a wider range of, of things that he, he can actually execute that are more spectacular than McTominay. And, and just in general, I think he's superior on the ball, right? And so if that's the standard, to be quite frank, I think United fans are going to be pleased regardless. In the long view, though, standards will adjust, right? And I, I can see like maybe six months from now or something, or in a particular big game, you know, let's say a rematch versus Liverpool, they really want revenge. And, you know, they, they really come out hard pressing, they find a way to cause trouble for him. And, you know, he has a couple terrible giveaways in Liverpool score, right? Then I think, you know, the criticism will come. And I think that's when people will start asking the question much later than you guys are asking, well, how does he fit in United? And what are the accommodations that need to be made for him? And that's when what United do, I think, really comes to the fore in terms of the optics of this transfer. And look, you can't replicate Luka Modric and Toni Kroos. Like, there just isn't those other players out there unless you get Luka Modric or Toni Kroos, which we joked about happening on the po- uh, happening, you know, before this podcast, but it's not happening now. And in terms of like the accommodations, like I, United still have to find a way, and the question is how. You know, even though you can't get you know Toni Kroos or Luka Modric, you can still get quality players in, and so to me, that's the first way, right? I think Frankie De Jong would be actually a pretty good fit, you know, alongside Casemiro, especially as a player who. You know, I don't know if I really need to say this because Case has been crying out for it for a while, but who actually enjoys doing that deeper work and that has spent a lot of time at Barcelona being shunted into these like, you know, very aggressive interior roles between the lines where I actually think he's adapted pretty well, but we, we don't see the old Frankie de Jong we saw at Ajax. And I still think the best of him comes when he can drop deep and initiate from there. And that might actually be a pretty good pairing with Casemiro. The thing is, if it's going to be a double pivot, I have my questions because, you know, no matter what you do, my understanding would be that he's still getting a side of the pitch to himself, basically, right? And that's still going to go on to increase the load. Remember, at Real Madrid, it was pretty much always 4-3-3, Kroos, Modric, Casemiro. Casemiro doesn't go to one side, he pushes up, and Kroos and Modric take both sides of the field, basically, right? So that would be one thing that you'd have to consider. Maybe there are ways where through other positions on the right-hand side you can adjust for that. But I think that's something purposeful that you actually have to find a solution for instead of just assuming it will naturally happen. But, but for example, getting someone like Frankie would be a start and then building from there right now, because I, I don't know how realistic getting Frankie is. It kind of seems like that has been passed on and you're looking at other targets like Anthony and whatnot, but... I think Eriksen Casemiro double pivot is, is just the best option that exists right now, even though, look, I mean, I, I like Eriksen, but he's just nowhere near Modric or Kroos at this moment, but I think that's the best option that, that happens now, and that's, for, for what United had previously, that's a workable midfield, even though it has its flaws. The final thing I'll say in regard to this, and this is where if you really want to go the other way and play devil's advocate, from my point of view, this is the most logical way to do it is you can argue that given that Eric Ten Hag has used and, and you know limited defensive midfielders in the past and they've looked fine in his system, you could argue that what Casemiro might experience at United is something he's never really experienced before at Real Madrid, which is structural, tactical safeguards as opposed to qualitative safeguards that will make things simpler for him and easier for him in possession. Because at Real Madrid, it's always been quite complex. It's Kroos and Modric are going to kind of do whatever they want and they will stitch things together on the fly and Casemiro is interpreting that as he goes. I don't imagine, even if you end up signing really elite talent, that's how Ten Hag will approach things. And so there is a case to be made that that is where you can accommodate for Casemiro outside of like qualitative components. My only thing would be, even why I see that as a legit argument, is does that scale to the Premier League, right? Because we saw that in, you know, the Eredivisie and 
look, I, I know Ajax did well in the Champions League, but from my point of view, like the standard of pressing and defensive structure and, and all of that is just at a completely different standard when we talk about Premier League, La Liga, and all of that. And so I have my questions about whether it's so easy to say it happened at Ajax, it's going to happen, you know, in 38 games in, in, in the Premier League season. Great. So Casemiro's kind of obviously signing at age 30, and that tends to be suboptimal uh, when you have any kind of footballer signing, let alone one whose strengths perhaps lie when the ball is not at his feet. Do you anticipate that Casemiro's game will age well, perhaps as he gets further on into his 30s? This is a four-year contract, so it's definitely a point of concern from my perspective. Do you think that could be an issue where maybe Casemiro loses a lot of his value in the latter half of his contract? When we talk about a game like aging well, we're not so much... I mean, it, we are talking about whether it's aging well, but it's kind of like a proxy for asking, are they going to like physically degrade? And generally, the assumption is that, that they will. But we, we've seen, especially from a Real Madrid perspective, like, for example, with Luka Modric, that it can be limited and slowed to a certain point where they still have immense value that it's... I find it difficult to say especially with Casemiro, because at least at Real Madrid, he was an immense professional and took care of his body really well, really durable. And it, I can fully see him still looking pretty good physically at age 33 and able to do most of the stuff he, he, he does against the ball. It's not kind of like a an N'Golo Kante situation where, I mean, his body just seems to be consistently breaking down. And we've gotten to a point where defensively, he's still pretty good, but not where he used to be. My worry would be that, yes, he's really durable, but Real Madrid took advantage of that to a crazy extent. I mean, this man has basically got no rest since he became a starter in the 15-16 season. And this became a consistent theme with him where every season, the first couple of months, would just not be good at all. And that's where the worst of his on-ball stuff would come. And every time that's when the discourse would come up, this is the time we move on from Casemiro. Then the Champions League comes around. You know, the difficult league matches come around. He gets his shit together, looks really good defensively. And then everyone's like, well, this is why we put up with it. This is why he's indispensable. So that stuff accumulates. And no matter how well he takes care of himself, that might come back to bite him. I just think it's a question of, is it worth the salary? And I think there's significant risks there. Because let's say he comes on the same salary he was at Real Madrid, you know, reduce the the fee you you paid to like something like 40 mil that might still seem a lot for a 30 year old but for someone of Casemiro's ilk and you know his professionalism and his durability up until this point I think you could make a case for it like that's okay right we can take this United side and upgrade the quality instantly for the next two to three years and then move on from there but to you know what I've seen the reports being and I know it's been conflicting is that five million has been added on to, to what he had at Real Madrid's to make it 12 million in total. Like, that's a lot. That is not insignificant. And I would be worried. But I don't think it's like this hard guarantee, like, you know, this, you know, he will degrade, right? Like he's 30 and that he's hit this, this limit and that for sure that money has gone down the drain. It's, again, these things are very hard to predict. But at that amount of money, I, I think there's a reason that Real Madrid were okay with it. Remember, Real Madrid have been scarred by that. We have good examples, but we've been scarred by keeping old players on long contracts. And if Real Madrid are making the calculation, we're okay with it, then maybe there's something to it. Although I understand Real Madrid's and United's goals are not the same at this point in time. I'm, I'm going to jump in here real quick. As for his salary, I agree 12 million sounds like a lot. and I'm sure it sounds like a lot to you, but it's like barely half what the highest earners on our wage bill make. Even though, like, I had a lot of reservations about this move from a financial standpoint, given his age, if Casemiro, given his pedigree, winds up at the top of a wage bill going forward, where the top of that wage bill is something like 230,000 pounds a week, I'm okay with that, even though I realize how high it is. Yeah, no, no, I think that's fair. It was an interesting perspective. Yeah, okay. And then I, as for my other thing, we're, I'm sort of backtracking here. Whether he can be accommodated for in the first phase of possession, whether it's more appropriate to use him higher up the pitch when we're in possession, 
I guess I'll make the question more direct because I think we did discuss it, but I don't think we got like a binary answer here. Basically, I'll explain what the roles in our midfield as we've seen them so far, and then you can answer this. And I think you've seen us play, but I'll, I'll explain them anyway for clarity. Bruno sort of sits high. He's like easily the most advanced midfielder. He's the attacking midfielder. When we defend, it's it's dependent on the match, but it's been a pivot. There's certainly been two midfielders deeper than Bruno. One of them has been in possession, tucked up high. It's typically been been McTominay, but it's been Fred once. And then you have this deeper role that I think people expect Casemiro to slot into. And it's it's the role Erickson played against Brentford, where he got killed under the press. We conceded goals as a result. Yeah, so basically my question is, do you think Casemiro will have more success in that deeper role where he'll have a lot of defensive responsibility and be successful doing that, but maybe less successful with the in-possession burdens? Or do you think he's more likely to succeed sort of playing that McTominay role where he's defensively deeper but hidden going forward? I think it's the latter for sure. I I mean, I I think Casemiro, like, honestly might enjoy doing the former, like, I, I think there's sometimes this misperception that like he purposely goes and hides away from the ball. I don't think that's really the case. Like I think Casemiro has extreme confidence in his abilities and has generally seemed to like enjoy having increased roles on the ball. And maybe like I don't really think this is the case, but maybe that's part of the appeal in going to United outside the money. Um because I mean the appeal of the footballing situation right now, like let's be honest, is a little dire, but if it's look, I prove myself at Real Madrid, but let me make a legacy outside Modric and Kroos and prove that I have all this on the ball, like I can see it. But based on what I've seen, and I can I can only judge based on the case study that we have at Real Madrid, I think for sure the much more comfortable situation for him impact-wise would be to, you know, tuck him higher up. Yeah, so I, I mean, the one thing I will add, I just kind of randomly, because I forgot to mention it, is like his work versus pressing also has kind of like that classic, well, that was nice and then that was bad type of vibe because he does have generally good pitch mapping because he's defensively really good, right? And that's not just because physically he's he's strong, he's fast or whatever. Like he's generally very good at reading and anticipating play. And there are situations where if he's able to, you know, see things happen before they do, and especially when he's facing play versus a press, he can make really quick decisions in terms of first-time passes and stuff like that and get you out of a situation and just progress you up the field really quickly. The issue then comes back down to like how accurate will those first-time passes be over the long run. And sometimes he, because he sees things so quickly, he just tries to rush into it and that can create errors. So like, yeah, basically just adding on to what I was saying previously a bit messily, but the entire picture comes together there. If if you want the best of Casemiro, you want him in an advanced role, in possession, and then have him screening as the six deeper. Interesting. That's that's what I gathered from uh, what you said earlier, but it's an interesting conundrum, I think, for United because we don't really have exactly that role, so there's going to be a little bit of compromise. Um, we'll see whether that happens. We'll see exactly how it plays out. Um, you've been awesome. Like genuinely, this has been so good. Couldn't have asked for a better first guest. Please let our listeners know where they can find you. They're going to be looking for the best analysis on which player United are signing next. And I, I'm just going to send them to the source because it seems like we're getting all our players from you guys now. So yeah, tell everyone where we can find you. Because it's been going to be Modric on deadline day. <laughs> Uh, you know what? It might actually be Kroos, given like he seems like absolutely heartbroken that Casemiro's gone. He's like called in sick to training. Apparently, he texted him at 4 a.m. Like, bro, are you really leaving? I think there's some deep heartbreak there. So maybe you have a chance. Who knows? <laughs> oh, no, that made me sad. <laughs> the best place to find me is, is Twitter at OMVA Sports. I'm sure these guys will include it in like the description or whatever. It should be quite easy to find me. And yeah, I mean, most of my stuff on like managing Madrid and stuff like that. So yeah, it was, it was a pleasure talking to you guys. I always enjoy talking about Real Madrid players and 
it seems at this point, because I follow both of you, like, I'm always into the United discourse at this point. I can't say I'm a United fan, I can't do that to myself, but I find myself paying way more attention to United than I should, so, you know, thanks or, like, no thanks for that, guys. Well, you're always welcome in the United Corner, Um, Thank you so much once again. Everyone else, stay tuned. We have a full breakdown of the Liverpool game coming in part two, as well as what it means for the team moving forward. All right. Thank you once again to Om Arvin for being on the podcast. Case, wasn't Om just awesome? Yeah, yeah. He's just a wealth of knowledge. Yeah, I, I cannot stress enough. I think he's probably like top three best follows on Twitter if you're interested in sort of the tactical side of the game. Um, his newsletter, which I think he's discontinued potentially temporarily, is probably my favorite newsletter. Definitely one of. So yeah, definitely... Uh, Try to keep tabs on what he has to say. Totally agree. And I mean, perhaps the only thing that matched up to that conversation with on this week was United's win over Liverpool. Uh, first win under Eric Ten Hag. We have been waiting for this moment. This week, United won their first game of the season. Points are on the board. Case, overall, I don't even know if I need to ask this, but how did you feel at the end of that Liverpool game? Uh, I was on my feet the whole second half. That was great. That was great. I mean, that's why you watch football. Yeah, um, I think I was expecting noise complaints after the Sancho goal. Um, and then if that wasn't enough, the the goal from Rashford just and the the him destroying the corner flag and the like the entire thing was just euphoria. It was totally great. It's been a long time since I was that happy, probably since like opening day last season when Pogba got four assists and Fernandez scored a hat trick like it. This is as good as it's been since then. But we're here to talk about the match and stuff that happened, so we both watched it back. And starting with the fact that it was pretty different to the first two games from a tactical perspective. Um, let's start with the most obvious thing, which is that De Gea was going long in build-up this time. And pretty much directly targeting Alanga and Rashford and that sort of striker left-half space sort of channel with his distribution. Yeah, so um, I think ultimately... This isn't that interesting in and of itself, right? I think we saw after the second goal against Brentford, this exact same thing. Uh, we basically completely stopped going short. At the time, I think I think the interesting thing about this as a phenomenon is whether it'll continue. When we stopped uh, trying to play out the back against Brentford, I assumed it was basically just trying to stop the bleeding uh, an acknowledgement that we weren't ready to do it or that Brentford were better prepared to exploit us than we were to exploit them and that we'd come back to it. You might think that because we stuck to that long ball approach against Liverpool that this is going to be a long-term solution. I still don't think it is. I think this was a tactical adjustment. Liverpool are a really good pressing side, even though they haven't looked that good, that good this year. It, it would be suicidal with, with no personnel changes to go, to have gone into this Liverpool match and said, things will turn out better this time. Even though I think, to a certain extent, there was a a lack of good fortune against Brentford. I don't think you play that match over again and we concede that many goals from pressing situations. But yeah, it was, I think it was a tactical adjustment. But it might not be. Maybe, maybe, we'll, see, maybe we'll see more of like a, a second ball heavy focus, especially with Casemiro coming in. You've got probably one of the best... Um, best players for that style that you could possibly ask for. So. Yeah, let's talk a little bit more about maybe the pros and cons of this kind of approach because the first thing I thought when I saw it was, wow, United are winning a lot of second balls in midfield, which is not something that I've seen in the past. And the second thing I thought while watching it was, this is probably not as viable against teams that are going to let United have a lot of the ball because this style will inevitably result in fewer final third entries. United's possession in this game was well below 40%. You don't want that to be the case when you're going to bottom half teams or, or, or trying to dominate across a league season. I think eventually sort of this kind of style is going to yield mixed results in, in perhaps different kinds of games. Do you want to discuss that a little bit? Yeah, for sure. Um, as for whether this is going to be an approach in other matches and whether it should be, I think for now it won't be an approach in matches against uh, sides lower down the table for the, basically the reasons you said. You're sacrificing control when you do this. You're also uh, becoming pretty reliant on not just winning second balls, but winning second balls 
in a manner that allows you to break very quickly. Because obviously you can win a second ball and just sort of start your your second phase of possession around the halfway line. But then you, you're essentially playing against a settled block. Liverpool happened to play a really high line, which means these second balls, we didn't win. We, we won far more of them than we typically do. And I, I do think that's actually down to A, a change in the way we were pressing, and B, definitely an increase in intensity. I think that was visible, especially in the first half. Yeah, so the reason it worked against Liverpool so so well is Liverpool leave you such so much space in behind. And against a different side, you're just those second balls aren't even going to be contested by the center backs that high up the pitch, leaving the team so exposed and uh, yeah, so exposed. So it's basically a question of whether this is a going to compromise control and B compromise United's ability to attack quickly and against stretch defenses. Yeah, I think you explained it really well and better than I would have been able to in in words. But I think basically the consequences of this approach are fewer final third entries and in that sense, less sort of sustained domination against other teams. And that's my way of saying, so yes, Ten Hag has sort of introduced this workaround for the issues that we saw against Brentford with the goalkeeper and buildup, but... I also don't think that this is a solution that is going to be as effective in the long run as just simply having the ability to execute those plays. And I think that's something that's important to point out because when you beat a team like Liverpool, I think it begins to look like the sky's the limit, but there's a lot more at play here. Awesome. Let's talk about the match specifics a little bit more and maybe some of the good stuff to start with. I thought this was a good match to showcase some of the new arrivals and what we can maybe expect from some of them this season. Let's start with Ericsson in the deep role. Yeah, I thought this was a better match to showcase what Ericsson might be able to offer in a deeper role. A lot of long-range passing from deep and also helping United get up the pitch with a little bit more efficiency. I also think that, as you pointed out to me, in the second half, Ericsson started to get a little bit tired and began to sort of limp through the rest of the match. Are we placing too high of a demand on Ericsson being able to be this guy for United this season. And are we looking for another midfielder? I I mean, I think the answer is a clear yes, but it's just, it's kind of staggering at this point. Yeah. So I think with Ericsson, yeah, mixed bag performance. I think he was pretty good in the first half. Then he got really tired and was very poor in the second half. He couldn't get up and down the pitch was struggling in duels because he's already not an incredibly physical player. And then when he's tired, like you, you can abuse him. And that was a big part of the, of Liverpool's goal uh, was that Ericsson already isn't really a, a, a major box defender. And then he was on tired legs. So he got out jumped. I think as for whether we should be in, a, in for another midfielder, whether uh, we need one, we definitely need another one. We're definitely putting too much load on Ericsson. I think he should rest this weekend personally. I think this is a good opportunity to run out Casemiro Fred um, or go for Donny. I know I've said that a million times and it never happens, so I, I, I'm not going to hold my breath. Um, but yeah, I think you really need to be in for another midfielder, and I'm a little concerned by how little urgency there seems to be about getting another one. Yeah, totally agree. And I'm not really surprised that this is becoming an issue, but... I think ideally you want Ericsson to be the one who comes in for the new signing who kind of takes that long-term place in the midfield because even though United have definitely addressed issues this summer going from, you know, the Fred and McTominay midfield to Casemiro and Ericsson, like that's a, that's a big difference. Both Casemiro and Ericsson are in their 30s and Ericsson in particular has not had the greatest time with fitness, obviously, and he's also not nominally a player in this position. So I just think it makes more sense to, I mean, I don't see Frankie Dion going over the line at this point, but maybe getting someone of that ilk to, to help him play that role. Um, let's talk a little bit more about Tyrell Malasia because this is the first 90 I watched of him, and it was his full United debut, I'd argue, with mostly just sort of consolation cameos in the other two games. Um, I thought Malasia had a pretty interesting performance, um, one that maybe... I think his athleticism was very helpful here. I think his uh, ability to get up and down the pitch was very obvious, and the aggression that he brought to the match was important in executing United style. I mean, I think the gamble he takes on winning a ball 
was what led to the Rashford goal. But I also think that he was maybe he benefited a lot from luck in in certain situations and overall maybe a good performance to showcase why he can be a huge asset to this side, but also maybe improve long term. Yeah, I agree with most of what you said. I think he was great, aggressive. He usually is both of those things. Really a, a very comfortable with being a touch tight defender, very physically gifted, so he can keep up with just about anybody. You saw him roughing up Salah uh, pretty easily. But absolutely, you're right. He takes risks, and he got there was some luck involved in his defensive performance. Uh, I can remember a specific instance where, or two, where really two, one where he slides in, the ball goes through his legs, and he has the time to recover, which partially has to do with his physicality. But another winger could punish that. Um, and then there's another instance where Salah beats him, turns, and his touch on the turn lets Malassi recover. So yeah, just something to keep an eye on. Everybody was raving about the performance for him. I love him. I don't think it was his, like the best you're going to see him play, but I do think he got lucky in duels. But yeah, there's a lot more to him as a player. We didn't even see some of his on-ball ability in that match, uh, which I think people will be really happy with. But I don't. I, you shouldn't expect him to be like a lockdown 1v1 guy who never gets beat. Awesome. And for this next section, I just wrote shameless Lysandra propaganda. So I'm just going to... First, I'm going to add a moment of about three seconds of silence here in honor of that Lissandra Martinez performance. All right. And now I'm going to talk about all of the people saying that he couldn't produce this performance in the Premier League. Let's talk about, I mean, this is just a ridiculous performance. I love the guy, like just so, so good on both sides of the ball. First of all, his passing range, he was just picking out players so nonchalantly, making perfect decisions, constantly getting out of pressure in difficult situations. And then out of possession, he was pulling out like a record, what it felt like a record amount of blocks that he was producing, blocking every single shot, getting in the way, super aggressive, but mostly making the right decisions. I think there was one situation where I thought he overcommitted. Just yeah, I, I don't even know what to say. I thought that I thought he was the best player on the pitch by far. And I thought this was the perfect way to respond to some of the discourse that's been going on around him that I thought was mostly unfounded up to this point and I think remains unfounded. Yeah, I think ultimately at the end of the season, we're going to look back and think a lot of the discourse around him was really silly. I think he's going to be one of our... He, I think he is one of our best players. I, I don't think this performance was an aberration. You can say, oh, Firmino is washed up. He's not a physical striker. To whatever extent those two things are true, I don't think it matters. I think we've got a great player on our hands. Yeah, I don't even know what else to say. I'm just kind of excited to watch him play again. Um, let's talk a little bit about the out-of-possession game and maybe some of the circumstances that led to United sort of dropping off in the second half because I thought the first half performance was excellent, but I wasn't quite as happy with what with what conspired in the second half and how maybe United lost a little bit of the control of the game. Um, let's start with the approach. United definitely played in a, a pretty strict block in this game, but I thought they pressed out of the block with a lot of intensity and aggressiveness, especially in the first half. Um, it made it really difficult for Liverpool to get into tempo, and I thought it really forced them into quite a few mistakes, um, especially with some of the stuff from maybe the forwards. Um, do you want to talk about how sort of United just made things so much more difficult than we've seen them do over the last year. Yeah. Uh, so as for the press, I thought it was very good in the first half. There were some structural improvements from really anything we've seen uh, going back a pretty long time. More curved press pressing runs from some of the forwards. The intensity was way higher than I can ever remember seeing ever, at least last season. Yeah, I think... I think it was just a really well-thought-out, well-executed, uh, out-of-possession approach in the first half. But I think we paid for it in the second half. We're, I think we're just not at like a, a fitness level as a, as a team yet to be able to do that for 90 minutes. And it showed. I think the defensive performance is actually pretty poor in the second half, uh, at, le at least from the front six as compared to the first half. Uh, I think there were, there's a lot to be positive about in the, fir in the first half and a lot to be concerned about. Uh, just as the player's tired, really. I think that's the primary thing. Even though there were some cognitive errors, especially from the, the deeper two uh, midfielders, 
I think it's ultimately a question about fitness. Yeah, I, I we've talked about this this week already, but basically I kind of think that this sort of pressing out of a block approach with this amount of intensity is a solution to the problem that we encountered maybe in Solskjaer's second season where the results against bigger teams just kind of started to fade because United were basically in the first season reacting to opponent mistakes and then capitalizing on them to to score, which is great, but they weren't necessarily forcing enough mistakes. So a little bit more in Solskjaer's second season, what I think we started to see was teams started to simply approach United with the angle of making fewer mistakes. And that led to a lot of nil-nils and and difficult matches, maybe in bigger games, even though the results... Which which isn't the end of the world in, a, in an away match against a top six side. No, not at all. But, like yeah. Especially with that squad, I think a lot of those results were still pretty good. Whereas in the first season, they were excellent. In the second season, they were pretty good. But I do think it, it sort of gave a good template for how to play United uh, without sort of being able, without sort of giving stuff away from them. And it also maybe forced United into some kind of development to help them get results. And I thought that's what we saw in the first half here with the pressing intensity. I think it's going to help increase the volume of chance creation that United are able to muster. But yeah, like you said, we saw a lot of the consequences of it in the second half where a lot of players seem to get very tired. I think long-term, this is sort of a sign that we're going to need to improve the fitness levels. I mean, I know it's not quite related, but we we saw sort of the reports about everyone running 13.8 kilometers after the Brentford loss last week. But yeah, I, I don't know. It's, it's one of those where in the short term, maybe it made United more vulnerable in the second half, but it's also what possibly led to the first two goals. And I think if United can get to a place where they can sustain that for 90 minutes, they might be more able to sort of force good results from difficult opposition. Yeah, I, I, I agree for the most part. Obviously, you'd like them to... A good way to prevent you from having to run out of possession so much is to maintain possession a little bit better. And there's a lot of different ways to do that. Uh, I'm not sure it's worth devoting the amount of time it would take today to really dig into it. But in short, it's basically going to be a question of winning more second balls or buying more technically secure midfielders or just playing out of the back more or some combination of all of those. I know there's been a little bit of discourse about how Ten Hag doesn't really tend to make a lot of substitutions, but in this particular match, he made five. And I think another possible solution to the issue, if you have five substitutions in all competitions, is to have high-quality substitutes available to come off the bench. I mean, I think Donny van de Beek, for example, could have come on earlier. Um, we saw him come on alongside Aaron Wambasaka and Ronaldo in the 86th minute. And I think sort of the delay with those substitutions was a little bit indicative of, of the fact that maybe the quality of substitutions that we need here um, to be able to or, or to help sustain this kind of pressure over 90 minutes aren't available. Perhaps alluding back to the issue with Erickson where there was this level of reluctance to take Erickson off throughout the match, even though he clearly needed it. Um, and in other positions, it was difficult to make those substitutions as well. Basically, in short, I know Ten Hag is a bit of substitutions. He's a bit reluctant to make substitutions. Do you sort of think that maybe having better substitutes available would be a, would, would be a big part in getting United to sort of dominate matches for longer periods i think obviously you want more good players and that'll have an effect but like you said he's always been reluctant to make substitutions so i'm not sure getting better substitutes is necessarily going to necessarily going to mean he makes more because i think he had good good options at ajax and he just didn't use them necessarily sometimes he did but i think for the most part he he used them late or something to that effect yeah i i haven't watched as much of his ajax as you but I got the impression that from from people I spoke to that he doesn't really like to make substitutions. But I also thought that the three substitutions towards the end were clearly a play to get through the last 10 minutes of that game. So I just thought it might be something worth bringing up. Let's take a little bit of a look at the Southampton game. Uh, in particular, lineup changes going into that match. From this game case, what would you maintain and what would you change? Yeah, so this is an interesting question because I think... Earlier than I would have expected in this season, we're at a point where 
we want to take into account fitness concerns just as much as we want to be fielding our best lineup for the opposition, right? I think when we discussed this a little, a little earlier, a couple of players were visibly very tired at the end of that uh, the Liverpool match. And I think you need to be wary of that, especially since Southampton is a, a young team, a team that can run, um, and a team that's been sort of playing a high-intensity style for a few years. They're ahead of us in, in that physicality department in some ways, or at least in that fitness department. So I would probably drop Ericsson. And then otherwise, uh, I think it's an obvious match for Casemiro to make his debut. Um, it's a fixture that I think suits him. Uh, beyond the midfield pivot, it's it gets blurrier. It gets a little tougher, I think. Um, you could make the argument that maybe you rotate Varane out or you rotate Malasia out. I, I see both sides of that. I don't have a strong opinion either way. I think you probably stick with what you have. Um, and then it comes to the front three. And I think probably you want to start this game with Rashford, Martial, Sancho, which was our preseason front three. We haven't seen it yet. And it seems like a good opportunity to, to run it out, given, um, given that we haven't seen Martial. So, yeah. Awesome. Yeah, in terms of the Varane, Malasia thing, I definitely think that we're likely to see Shaw, Maguire, Varane, and Malasia at some point within the next two weeks because United play two games within a week after the Southampton match, which is going to be an opportunity for rotation. And I also think that that's likely to be the case once the Europa League starts. You're going to be seeing almost everyone every week. Um, in terms of the front three, we had a good question from Aldo that I think relates to this quite well. Can we rely on Martial and Rashford as the nine when Ronaldo leaves or does not play? This question made me kind of realize that we've covered Ronaldo as a nine on the podcast, but not really Martial and Rashford. Um, let's talk a little bit about their deficiencies and why perhaps games like Liverpool don't show them. So my response to your question would be, I, I kind of think that the Liverpool game made both of them look really good. Martial, in the case that his main role in that game was to receive and retain the ball in transition, which he's very good at doing, especially with his back to goal. Martial had a great game, like really good timed actions, including the assist for the second goal, winning that foul um, in his own half at the end of the game, just different actions that really did help United retain the ball and made me understand why he replaced Nalanga in the first place. And Rashford started the game at nine, and he was making great runs in behind, obviously scored that goal. So on the surface, you would think this might be like a bit of a season starter for both of them. But And, and I think in, in some ways, Southampton could be suited to, the, to them a little bit as well. But against teams that maybe try to sit deeper and, and, and play in a block, they tend to struggle a fair bit. Rashford tends to have the play in front of him, and his, his movement isn't quite as efficient. And Martial's movement is next to non-existent against a block, especially for a for a player who's playing striker for a team that aims to finish in the European places in the Premier League. So basically the answer is, I think they're likely to be the nine options this season, uh, along with Alanga, who could be an interesting mix-up. And I don't think that's optimal, but I do think that it'll probably be better than what you would get from Ronaldo. And and in the case of the Southampton game, I would basically go with the second half front three, which was, like Kay said, uh, Sancho, Martial, Rashford. It's a toss-up between Rashford and Alanga. I think you have to play Sancho and Martial, but I would go with Rashford based on his second half performance against Liverpool. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think as for Martial specifically, um, because I think he's going to be the, the main, the main uh, number nine in his team going forward, uh, at least for this season... Uh, I've been pretty vocal about exactly what you just said. Basically, his his movement and his deficiencies in that capacity against uh, sides that set up in a low block against United, which is a good number of sides. Um, and I think you covered the, the negatives well there. So I'll I'll just try to put a little bit of positive spin. Um, I think this is probably the first time that Martial is going to have the opportunity to play in a well structured attack. Um, things were more free form under Mourinho and Ali. And I think maybe, and I'm not certain of this by any stretch of the imagination, but maybe he's going to have the opportunity to have more, uh, rehearsed, uh, uh, 
runners behind him uh, when he receives the ball on the turn, which is probably going to help his production, allow us to be more incisive despite him not occupying the last line. That This is obviously uh, hopeful thinking uh, because I really think the wingers that he's going to have abreast of him and, and the creators that he's going to have behind him aren't really going to be suited to this. Uh, but you never know. I, this is obviously what the blueprint is because you need goals. You need 70 goals in a season, and I don't really see this front three getting more than 30 or 35. Uh, so you're going to need a, a secondary uh, avenue. Perfect. Um, I'll throw in another question because I think the transfer rumors from last week that we, we spoke about Gakpo and Antony, but I think they've become a little bit more interesting because there are rumors sort of that either could join, but also maybe both could join. We had a question from Tim that he basically said, would love to hear your thoughts on Gakpo. Since we seemingly want him not instead of, but together with Antony, do you think Ten Hag could want him for more of a central role? I've been interested by this one myself. Um, I haven't seen that much of Gakpo, but I know you told me in the past that you don't really favor him as a striker case. Um, to me, though, it seems like he could want both Gakpo and Antony, despite needing a striker. So what's that about? Right. Yeah, so this is an interesting question. Um, yeah, personally, I would be pretty opposed to, to buying Gakpo to use him as a striker. It's for two reasons. Um, firstly, I already have concerns about Gakpo's ability to translate to the Premier League immediately. Um, I think even if you use him in his natural position at left wing, uh, there are certain aspects of his game, specifically sort of his lack of explosiveness as a 1v1 dribbler, that could make him less incisive than he is um, now. Which is obviously a big concern when you're laying out that kind of money. And I think it's an even bigger concern if his squad role is going to be so important as, as that second choice, maybe maybe even first choice striker at a certain point in the season. Um, yeah, and then as for why I, I don't... As for why I'd be concerned at striker specifically, um, he's a big guy, so you'd think he would translate pretty well to the position. But I don't think he has, like, stellar goal scoring movement i think it's good for his position at left wing uh having been a bit withdrawn not always uh, at pace they typically play played like a 4-2-2-2 or a 4-2-3-1 um in previous seasons uh under schmidt and i think uh he was more withdrawn and and, and sort of had a really heavy uh workload as a creator at left wing and to me, that isn't really a translatable equivalent position to a low number nine in the Premier League. The other side of things is he probably would play the position similarly to Martial. So maybe that's the thought process here. Um, he's got decent hold-up play. And, and to whatever extent that he, he can, I think he has the frame to grow into it even more. And then also, uh, he's he, he's a much better creative passer than Martial. So it would be interesting to see... Um, Maybe he could link play even better. Uh, and, and then finally, you could make the argument that maybe his lack of explosiveness uh, plays better at center forward. It's, it's tough to say, but for me, he's still a left winger. I think I'm pretty skeptical at this point about both Gakpo and Antony joining United. But whether they do or not it seems like united are going to be playing a lot of matches this season without maybe a traditional number nine it seems like whoever plays up front is going to be someone who tends to occupy deeper areas to me that makes me think and and especially with creative wingers like antony and gakpo rumored to join that makes me think each either which way you're gonna end up with perhaps someone else needing to provide some of the box threat for united and and basically supplement the goals. Do you think that could end up being the central midfielder? I know Van de Beek hasn't really played, and we've both been kind of waiting for his inclusion to see what he can do. Um, but even Bruno Fernandes, to me, his movement seems like a pretty strong facet of his game, and I have concerns about him as a sort of high-usage um, creator in a heavy possession system where multiple players share the creative burden. So basically my question is, do you think we could see a formation or, or a system where 
the midfielder or the third midfielder begins to play a little bit more of a role in the team's goal scoring threat? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, it, it's it's worth noting that that's uh, something that we've seen uh, from Tanakh's sides. Uh, so potentially, uh, it's tough to say. I think you probably need to find the goal scoring threat from that position because personally, I don't see the current personnel we have in our front three scoring more than maybe 30 goals. Um, and that, and that just won't do it. You need like 70 from a team, um, in the league specifically, I'm talking about league goals, um, to be really competitive. Uh, and so the goals are going to have to come to some extent from somewhere else. Um, and yeah, probably the prime candidate you would think would be Bruno Fernandez or, or an equivalent in that position. Uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see. I would kind of like to see that happen because I think even though Bruno is obviously a talented player, I think he's a little inefficient in that as the primary creator. And I think if you bring in somebody like Gakpo uh, or Anthony, you may be, uh, not that either of them is super, super efficient, uh, Gakpo more than Anthony maybe, but you, you sort of redistribute that creative load to players who I think are a little uh, cleaner, technically. Perfect. I think with that, that's all we have for today. So thank you once again for listening to the podcast. Subscribe to Devils in the Details on your favorite podcasting platform. Give us a good review and stay tuned. Next week, we have some interesting content lined up for you. Also, make sure you follow Om on Twitter. He's great, uh, at OmVA Sports. And have a great week. Enjoy the Southampton game.